from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Good evening. Excuse me. Not enough gin. Um, Wellington. Why the Wellington? I'm going to annoy these cameramen now because I like to move around a bit. You ask anybody, sort of man in the street, name a, uh, name a fighter in the Second World War, and they'll say Spitfire. Ask him to name a bomber, and he's going to say... Lovely. Exactly. And I felt there was a need for what I hope is almost a definitive book, if that's not too pompous, on the Wellington. And we'll look at some of the claims to fame of the Wellington in just a minute. But I want to start with this picture. Now, there's a Wellington flying uh, quite low... Uh, doing a completely illegal beat-up. This is a 214 Squadron crew at Stradishall in Suffolk who have just completed their 30th and last op of their tour. So they're now enjoying that fact in time-honoured fashion. Six guys in an aeroplane, average age 22. It's, that's quite a sobering thought, isn't it, really? Can you imagine somebody's age 22 years? I don't know. Different circumstances, I know. So... That wasn't me, Gov, honest. Right, some of the claims to fame of the Wimpy. It was the only RAF bomber to serve as a bomber in the European war from the first day of the war to the last. No, it wasn't, people say. Bomber Command stopped dropping bombs out of Wellington's in 1943. True, but we'll come on to who was still dropping bombs in Europe out of Wellington's later on. Uh, it was the first type to bomb Germany. There were a few Whitleys as well at the same time, but nonetheless, it was the first. It was the first to bomb Berlin, the first to drop the 4,000-pound <coughs> cookie bomb, which we'll talk about a bit later on. 1,000-bomber raids, I'm sure you've all heard of those. On the first 1,000-bomber raid, 602 of the aircraft were Wellingtons. Extraordinary total. And look at the number built, 11,462. Now, I know most reference books say 11,461, but I'm a stickler for accuracy, and it was 11,462, honest. Um, far more than the Lancaster and Halifax, as you can see there. So those are some things we're going to touch on as we go through the next hour and a bit. And, of course, the Wellington wasn't just a bomber. Lots of other things it did, and we'll touch on most, if not all, of those. And we'll also talk at the end about well, sorry, not the end, some way through, about Sergeant Jimmy Ward, who won the VC in the Wellington. It's a remarkable story, if you don't know it. And please don't spell it with an E. Because it's named after him. Yes. Wimpy Wellington, J. Wellington Wimpy, out of the um, football cartoons. In fact, I had a hell of a job persuading Grub Street, who published the book for me, that didn't have an E in it. But uh, nonetheless. Right, let's start with, at the beginning, fairly obvious thing to do. This is the prototype, believe it or not. Ooh, I keep touching something I shouldn't touch. Um, it doesn't look a lot like a Wellington, I grant you. But this is the Crazy, the first prototype which led to the Wellington, built to specification B932. So it goes a long way back. And B932, 1932, Sweat called for a medium bomber to replace things like Virginias and Overstrands and ancient biplanes we had at the time. Two aircraft actually won the specification and won the contract. One was the Wellington, the other one was the Hamden. You wouldn't think they're much the same, but they were both ordered into production to satisfy that design spec. Chief designer Rex Pearson, first flown in June 1936 by Mutt Summers, who also made the first flight that year in the Spitfire, as I expect you know. Now, why the crazy? Well, the thinking was at that time that all RAF bombers would be named after towns and cities. Now, somebody who maybe didn't like the French very much uh, decided to call it the crazy. And if you know your history, you will know that there was a tremendous battle at Crecy and the English army, led by Edward III, defeated the French at the Battle of Crecy. Uh, so somebody thought, oh, maybe it's not such a good idea then. We'd better choose another city, beginning with W, Wellington. That'll go down well with the French too, won't it? <laughs> anyway, um, back to the French again later on. But you can see that's a very different-looking beast. 
Now, I'm sure most of you are aware of the geodetic structure that the Wellington uses. It wasn't actually the first aeroplane that used that Barnes-Wallace design structure. The Wellesley was actually the first one. And another thing I'd like to put to bed right now is the Warwick. The Warwick was not the Super Wellington. It was not designed as a follow-on to Wellington to fly higher, further, faster. It was designed in parallel with the Wellington, intended as a heavy bomber. So, uh, which is why you won't find much about the Warwick in my book. It's a little bit, but not much. Now, you can see they changed the production aircraft quite a lot. A far more angular fuselage to accommodate a tail turret. Um, the prototype was extremely unstable, and in fact, it was lost due to tailplane flutter while having trials at Martlesham Heath and killed the observer. The pilot managed to get out, but the observer didn't. Well, incidentally, talking of first flights, one thing I forgot to mention, a lot of sources say that when the crazy flew for the first time, Barnes-Wallace was up there with Mark Summers. Well, sorry to disappoint people, but he wasn't. Uh, go to the archives at Brooklands, they have Mark Summers' logbook, and he was on his own when he flew it for the first time. Barnes-Wallace went up on it later on. So you can see a lot of changes were made for productionising the aeroplane. And having done that, 180 were ordered initially off the drawing board, which is not bad. First production aircraft flew in 1937, and the first delivery to 99 Squadron at Milden Hall was in October 1938. And the aircraft you see there is the first production aircraft, which never actually went to the Air Force at all. With large quantities being awkward, being ordered... That 180 batch was followed on quite quickly by others. And with the coming of war, then Wellington was introduced into the uh, shadow factory scheme. We don't want to build everything at Brooklands because it's a bit vulnerable there. So shadow factories were set up at Harden, Chester, where they now make the Airbus wings, and at Squiresgate, Blackpool. Uh, This shot actually was taken at Harden. And there was going to be a Wellington shadow factory at Hatfield, but for whatever reason, it was never uh, pursued. So there's 99 Squadron at Mildenhall. That's one-third of a very long, narrow photograph uh, showing the entire squadron. The reason I put that one in is because the aircraft is L4215, which is the first Wellington delivered to the Air Force. And search as I might, that's the only photograph I found of it. This dapper chap here is the, the vicar's rep, um, and they replaced Hayfords at, um, on 99 Squadron. Now, I'm sure right at the back you can't read that, but I, I found this. At, has anybody been to Digby, RAF Digby, and been in the ops centre there? This, they have an original copy of the signal that went out on the 3rd of September 1939 to RAF stations announcing that war had been declared. And I like this. For those of you who can't read it at the back, it says, war has broken out with Germany only. Well, I don't know who else we were picking a fight with at the time, but it was only Germany. Uh, Now, throughout this talk, there are a few sound bites for you, and the quality is a little bit variable because I'm talking to quite old gentlemen. Uh, But you're going to hear one now, a chap called Norman Didwell, who we know very well, let me grow him, uh, Norman Dibwell is still alive and kicking at 95, and he was ground crew on 99 Squadron at Mildenhall from May 1939. And he's going to talk now, hopefully the IT still works, about what happened on the 3rd of September.
The chap he was talking about was a retired major who was clerk of the course at Newmarket Racecourse. I had no notification of his aeroplanes coming. I was even more horrified later that day when his grandstand was taken over as sleeping accommodation for 300 airmen. So I imagine he was a little bit um, perturbed. Um, early operations, the first Wellington operation was on the 3rd of September 1939. And a subject that often comes up is, did the geodetic structure flex and twist? Oh boy, yes it did. And you talk to people who flew in it and they say, oh, it's really weird to look out of the window and the wings are doing all sorts of strange things. Um, however, having said that, extraordinarily strong. The amount of damage that Wellington could take and keep on flying was just phenomenal. And somebody told me that uh, they were flying very low in a Wellington at night back over the North Sea, back from a raid, and they got a little bit too low and hit the sea, bounced back into the air kept on flying, but the sea had taken off the Bombay doors and a lot of water got into the fuselage and the chap in the rear turret was somewhat wet. Um, but, the thing, but it got back in one piece, more, more or less one piece. Quite extraordinary. Mustn't forget ground crew. Hey, sorry for ground crew. Um, again, veterans are always very complimentary about their ground crew, well, most of them anyway. And... The quote that I like, one chap said to me, well, we, the flight crew, the air crew, didn't own the aeroplanes. It was the ground crew's aeroplane. They only lent them to us on the promise that we brought them back. And it was really tough coming back from a raid, taxiing into your dispersal, and taxiing past another dispersal where there's a crew waiting for their aircraft that they knew weren't going to come back. So, good on the ground crew. Um, now, unfortunately, we started to get some pretty severe losses. 14th of December 1939, what came to be called the Battle of Heligoland Bight, where 99 Squadron sent out 12 Wellingtons, unescorted, daylight, using close formation for self-protection to attack the German fleet. Um, only five of them came back, because they were set upon by ME-110s and ME-109s, and this mutual defence just didn't work. Nonetheless, Bomber Command decided, four days later, to try it again. 24 aircraft this time, again, mutual defence, close formation, from three other squadrons, 12 didn't come back. And those two events really forced a major rethink on this daylight, unescorted mode of operation for bombers. And there were no more daylight raids for a long, long time after that, using Wellington or using anything else, come to that. And that shot is one of the um, 14th of December aircraft that came down on the way back from Germany. So, who was in the crew? Pilot, obviously, navigator, wireless operator, and two air gunners was the normal crew complement at first. Second pilot from time to time, particularly when a new tour guide uh, arrived on guy arrived on the squadron. So he'd do a couple of trips as a second dicky to get used to the aeroplane. Bombamer only came on along later. Bombamer was really only common in Wellingtons when they were in the Mediterranean. So who did the bombaming? Well, navigator, usually, if they didn't have a bombamer. But that's the standard compliment. What could it carry? 4,000 pounds of bombs, not a bad bomb load at all. Usually a mixture of 250 and 1,000 pounders and or incendiaries. And I've mentioned already that they could carry this 4,000-pound cookie, which necessitated removing the bomb bay doors to carry it. So it was pretty drafty inside what was already a pretty drafty aeroplane when you're carrying cookies. Now, I haven't gone mad and decided to take up fishing. Does that mean anything to anybody? How about I tell you they're Bomber Command code words for German cities. They're Cologne, Bremen and Essen. And most German cities had fish code names. I know Stoat isn't, but the other two are. Presumably with the thought that if somebody intercepted a signal, they wouldn't know what the target was. Although, if you use the same code word over and over again, they'll soon work it out. But they are <laughs> they're Cologne, Bremen and Essen. And the reason they used fish was because senior officer in Bomber Command HQ was a keen angler. Simple as that. I've 
met quite a few guys along this research for this book who flew on Thousand Bomber Raids, and I asked them, well, what was it like? Well, we were aware that there were a lot more aeroplanes, but you're just so busy looking out, trying not to bump into each other, you don't really think about it. And the other thing about the Thousand Bomber Raids is, I said there were 602 Wellingtons on the first one. Only about, just over half of those were from regular squadrons. The rest came from training units to make up the numbers. And that's really strange how they made those crews up, but I'll, I'll come on to that a bit later. Right, let's talk about Jimmy Ward. There he is. 22-year-old second pilot on 75 New Zealand squadron, which was set up in 1939. New Zealand ordered 24 Wellingtons for their own air force. And um, once war broke out, thought, no, we'll let the RAF have them. So they handed them over to the RAF to form 75 squadron. And they were, by and large, crewed by New Zealanders, but not all the time. And during an attack on Munster on the night of 7th, 8th of July, 1941, Jimmy Ward's Wellington was hit by anti-aircraft fire when they were flying at 10,000 feet. Wellington couldn't go very high anyway. <clears throat> and set the fuel feed to the starboard engine on fire. So there's now quite a raging fire just inboard of the starboard engine. Tried diving a bit to put it out. No, couldn't put it out. So Jimmy Ward volunteered to climb out onto the wing and take the canvas canopy cover with him and stuff it into the hole to put the fire out. That's an extraordinary thing to do. Now, the geodetic construction is covered in canvas, so get the fire axe, cut a hole in the canvas so you can climb out onto the wing. And one of his fellow crewmen said, well, hang on a minute, what if you fall off? So he tied a bit of rope around him the other end tied around the other crewman who's hanging onto the structure of the aeroplane. And he crawled out onto the wing at night over Germany at a hundred, mile, hundred and something mile an hour gale, being shot at, struggling to ca- carry this um, canopy cover and stuff it into the hole to put the fire out. And he did for a while, but then the slipstream took it away, but it had quelled the fire sufficiently. He hadn't put it out, but it had dampened it down sufficiently for him to get back. And he was dragged back in and... Uh, Got immediate VC for that, quite rightly too, which was awarded to him by the, the king about a month later. Um, but then he was lost three months after that, sorry, two months after that, uh, over Hamburg. But what an extraordinary guy. Isn't that, that's an amazing story. I, I think it's just incredible. Anyway, the Bomber Command build-up continued with Wellingtons. Now, the astute... Sharp-eyed ones amongst you. You will notice those Wellingtons a little bit different. They have Merlin engines instead of Pegasus or Hercules radials, which everything else had, or twin wasps and things. The reason for that was that at a point in around about 41, late 40, early 41, the Ministry of Aircraft Production was worried about single source of engines for an important combat type. So what if the Hercules engine supply dried up so they brought out the Mark II Wellington with Merlins, similar to the Lancaster Mark II had Hercules in case there were shortage of Merlins. So it's belts and braces, really, trying to ensure that they'd still have enough aeroplanes. 200 and something Mark IIs only were made. Uh, they weren't terribly popular because it was quite an unstable aeroplane for some strange reason. A um, bit of a change of C of G, perhaps, not too sure. But anyway, you can see that the peak strength of Wellington squadrons in Bomber Command was early, it was January 1942, and there were 25 squadrons. We haven't got 25 squadrons in the Air Force now, but there you go. Uh, different circumstance, I know. But already the Lancaster and Halifax in particular were starting to come on board in increasing numbers, so the decline started almost as soon as the peak was reached. The, the late squadrons joining in were Australian and Canadian, uh, Polish, and so on. So having withdrawn a lot of Wellingtons from Bomber Command main force in the UK. Off, most of them went to the Mediterranean to help the war out there. And the last main force operation from the UK using Wellingtons, as it says there, was Hamburg on the 9th of 8th, 9th October 1943. And that's when people say, oh, that was it then, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. Let's move on to a different... We'll come back to bombing. Let's move on to a different role... 
Maritime operations, sub-hunting, convoy protection, primarily sub-hunting. Coastal commands sunk 220 U-boats during the war, of which the Wellingtons sunk 25, for the loss of about 30 Wellingtons. Very, very risky business, attacking a U-boat. And you'll, you'll hear from somebody why that was in a minute. But its strengths were um, air-to-surface vessel radar. You see that radar in the front there? Well, that's the Mark III air-to-surface vessel radar, which had a range on a good day of about 20 miles to pick up a U-boat, providing it was on the surface, of course. Now, I don't know if you can see, see that little protuberance there. The first Wellingtons, the Mark I's, had a ventral turret, a, a dustbin turret, which could be lowered and wound back up again. So they wanted to find a way of illuminating U-boats if they caught them on the surface at night. And a squadron leader, Lee, in HQ Coastal Command at Northwood, hence the name, invented the Lee light, which made use of the gap in the structure where the, the uh, turret used to be to be able to lower this searchlight sort of on demand and point it at the submarine. Weapons against submarines, depth charges, normally carried or drop salvos of five or six depth charges, uh, and torpedoes as well to a certain degree. That was really more in the Mediterranean. Sticklebacks and Goofingtons. We love nicknames in the Air Force, don't we? Um, this is a, an earlier maritime Wellington. Oops, sorry. Oops, go back. Sorry. This is an earlier maritime Wellington. You see all these telegraph poles sticking up the top. That's the Mark I air-to-surface vessel radar, which had a range on a good day of three or four miles, if you're lucky. Uh, but that's why they were nicknamed sticklebacks, because of all the telegraph poles sticking up the back. They're also known as goofingtons, colloquially amongst squadrons in Mediterranean in particular, because they were goofing around looking for the enemy, I suppose. That's where it came from. So battling the U-boats, these are Mark 14 with Wellingtons, with ASV-3 again, the, the most advanced coastal Wellingtons at Jivener. And now we're going to hear from a chap who was um, on a, a maritime squadron in the Mediterranean and just hear what he has to say about their attack methods. The standard attack altitude is 50 feet. Now, you think how good altimeters were in those days. Um, you know, and the standard attack profile was to angle off 45 degrees to straddle the U-boat. So you drop a, sti- a stick of sticks, as he said. Hopefully one or two might hit it. Uh, but, but you see the drawback to the lee light. They can just shoot back up the beam at you. Now, I mentioned the Mediterranean. A lot of these Wellingtons being withdrawn from main force bomber command ops were sent out to reinforce the bomber forces in 
North Africa, uh, moving up and down the coast, along with the, as the, the army's fortunes ebbed and flowed, and ultimately going on following the invasion into Italy and so on, but we'll come on to that. Here's another one for you, Fishingtons. Guess what that is? A Wellington carrying torpedoes. And two 18-inch torpedoes, to partly to save weight and partly because it was considered unnecessary, it did away with the nose turret. But you can see that strange sort of coat hanger device up there to the front of the cockpit. That's the sight for sighting the torpedoes. Real high-tech stuff. So the standard attack profile, there's, now you all know that's a, a goofington or a stickleback. The standard profile for attacking, finding and attacking Rommel's convoys was the sticklebacks would go out looking for them and if they found the convoys then they would call in an attack force which would be a mixture of bombers and torpedo aircraft. And the bombers were sort of sacrificial almost because the bombers would go in first and attack the convoy, hopefully trying to hit them, obviously, uh, but also to distract them from looking up towards where the moon may be, because coming down the path of the moon were the torpedo-carrying bombers. That was the standard way of doing it. Quite successfully, too, it has to be said. 205 Group was the overriding uh, RAF governing force for the Wellingtons in North Africa. You can see what a challenging place it was to fly from. Obviously very sandy. So uh, sand would get absolutely everywhere. And these things would get um, put down the desert in all sorts of places. Now, this episode here, Sergeant Bob Withers and his crew, um, I have to get this absolutely right because his son is sitting in the audience. Uh, Sergeant Bob Withers, 37 Squadron, had a bit of an issue with his Wellington. And one good thing, depending on where you are, about North Africa is it's flat. Most of it is flat, firm, hard, albeit rocky sand. So you can put it down. So they put their aircraft down, were able to uh, let people know where they were. And as you see there, 35 hours later, along came this Bristol Bombay of 216 Squadron, with the necessary people to sort the Wellington out and fly it out again. So there they were, stranded out in the, in the desert for a day and a half and, uh, and were rescued, which was rather good. And I think it's really tremendous that somebody had the sense of mind to take this picture. Completely illegal, of course, but what a great photograph taken on the day. And there are lots and lots of stories like that of aircraft being put down and subsequently being recovered. And I'll share another one with you. They used to fly the Wellingtons out from, mainly from Portreath in Cornwall. They're delivering them to the Middle East. To Gibraltar, to Malta, to Cairo. But at the height of the Malta uh, issue, they thought, we've got to try and find another way of doing this because we can't take petrol from Malta. They need it desperately for what they need to defend the, defend the island. Well, we can put long-range tanks in a, in a Wellington, get it to jib, top it up as far as it'll go, and we should be able to make Cairo in one hop. So I've spoken to somebody, believe it or not, I'm not making this up, from the very first crew to do that. And they flew into Jib, in a brand new Wellington, with overloaded tank, overload tanks in the fuselage, topped it up to the gunnels, and off they went, uh, and they got lost. And they were getting low on fuel, and they thought, what the hell are we going to do? Well, we'll fly south until we find the coast, so they flew south until they found the North African coast, very low on fuel by now, and the skipper said, well, I'm just going to have to put it down, lads. Oh, it was a nice, flat, firm-looking beach, so they landed on the beach, quite successfully, no issues at all. And he, <laughs> he said, within about ten minutes, Arabs appeared over the hill. <laughs> oh, you know, what's going on here? Um, I'll cut the long, very long story short. They were picked up, taken to a, a town not that far away and let their squadron know where they were to await somebody to come and pick them up. And they, they were a long, long way from where they should be. And they were feeling quite happy with themselves. Nobody was hurt or anything. And they were staying in a, probably not very glamorous, but staying in a hotel in this town. And one morning they, were, they woke up to a tremendous 
tremendous commotion going on outside. The Germans are coming, Germans are coming. And people rushing around like mad things. So they thought, this is not conducive to good health if we stay here. So we've got to get out. So they went out in the street, and he assures me this is true. I have no reason to doubt it. As they went out to the hotel, along the street drove a South African Air Force fuel bowser. Stop! You'll be relieved to hear I'm not going to attempt a South African accent. But I said to the driver, have you got avgas in there or kerosene, you know, fuel in there? Yes, yes. Come with us. We're commandeering this bowser. And they drove the 20-odd miles we back to where the Wellington had been left a few days before, expecting it had been um, souvenir-hunted, let's say. But no, it was still sitting there, untouched. So they fueled it up and flew it out. Thank you very much, South African Air Force. Amazing. We, we chased Rommel and all his lot um, west back into Tunisia, then they hopped across back to Italy. So the Wellington operations shifted to Tunisia, then after the invasion of Sicily and in, on into Italy, they went into Italy, uh, had a lot of operations, both still within Italy, but two other particular aspects that um, I want to mention. One is mining the Danube to try and cut off, obviously, supply routes on the River Danube, particularly in uh, Hungary. And this, again, was an operation to fly at something like 25, 30 feet off the surface of the river to, drop, to, to lay mines in the river. Why so low? Because there were lots of high-tension wires and things. So you had to go underneath them. And just some remarkable stories. But the other one, we're going to hear from somebody else now. It's a bit of a long... Uh, sound bite, but I, I'd like to listen to it. I think this is tremendous. By late in the war, the only natural source of oil left to Germany was in Romania, the notorious Ploesti oil fields. All their other fuel came from um, synthetic oil. So we made a big effort to try and deny them the Ploesti oil fields, and they were extremely heavily defended. And we're going to hear now from a chap describing what happened to them on just such a raid. Thank you. 
Incredible, absolutely incredible. He goes on, I mean, I, I could play loads of this because he was a fantastic chap to talk to. You would think, having had that experience, let's get home now. But as he said there, his skipper was a bit sort of gung-ho. And on the way back from Ploesti, one of them, I think it was, I can't remember who he said saw it, either the skipper or the second skipper, said, uh, oh, there's an aircraft over there with navigation lights on. And they were flying in the same direction as another aircraft, same altitude, bearing in mind it's still night time, obviously. So the skipper says, well, that must be a German aeroplane. So there must, must be an airfield around here somewhere. Because you only put your nav lights on when you're getting near your airfield. Let's follow him. Really? <laughs> so they, they followed this thing, and, they, and it was a Junkers 88. And eventually a flare path was lit... Well, that's where he's going then. We'll follow him in. We're about the same size and shape, roughly, as a Junkers 88 at night. They won't know. And they've probably got the same situation. They'll just give you a green and you can land. We can have some fun. Really, boss? Do you want to do this? So they did. So they followed this Junkers 88 and so they put their nav lights on. Junkers 88 landed. Sure enough, they got a green. So they said, right, front gunner, you shoot anything you can see to the left. Rear gunner, you shoot anything you can see to the right. So as they're on short finals, open up the engine, wheels up, fly down the runway, shooting in all directions. I got away with it. And on the way back to base, he said, came on the intercom, the, the skipper, and he said, now don't you tell anybody about this, you buggers. Don't you tell anybody. And they say landed and did their debrief and didn't mention that because he told them not to. And a day or two later, the skipper walked into the mess and there was a tap on his shoulder, and it was a squadron commander. He said, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> Somebody had spilt the beans. Um, talked about following the Germans up into Italy, also going further on up into Austria to take out German airfields and so on. And here's one here. 51 Wellington sent out to attack this airfield in Austria. It's notorious, this one. You see, 17 were lost. And Peter Fotherby, we're going to hear from again in a minute, um, his aircraft was upset by a very close flak burst, which actually turned the aircraft upside down. And he's now in a not-far-off vertical dive. And he pulled out okay, oh, during which the engines cut out, by the way, um, and he pulled out with indicated 300 miles an hour on the clock, which is about the fastest probably Wellington's ever flown, I think, and stayed in one piece. And as he pulled out, the engines restarted. Quite extraordinary. Now about that one, the wedding ring wimpy. Um, DWI stands for Directional Wireless Installation or Down With Hitler. (laughs) It was called DWI to fool the enemy into thinking it was something to do with wireless. That enormous great 50-foot diameter ring is a degaussing ring to explode magnetic mines. And in the fuselage of this is uh, 
either a Ford V8 or a Gypsy engine, which provides the necessary power to energise this degaussing ring and set up a magnetic field. The idea being you fly low over the sea and the magnetic field will set off magnetic mines. Well, yes, you have to go a bit low, though. They, they found you had to go down to about 25 to 50 feet before it would have sufficient effect to explode the mine. And they were used very successfully in North Africa, uh, particularly in Tripoli Harbour and the Suez Canal, exploding mines. They would fly ahead of convoys going through the canal to explode mines. But one little-known fact, well, I'd never heard this before, I was doing this research, it was something that fascinated me. When they first made these DWI Wellingtons, there was a unit at Manston, number one general reconnaissance unit, again, giving nothing away, that was trialling them. This is in early 1940. And I found something in their operations record book, and having dug into it further... All they were doing was flying in the, in the channel, immediately close to the French coast, just trying to see and looking for mines that had been dropped for them deliberately, which sounds a bit odd, by us, to see they'd explode them. But on a date in May 1940, two aircraft were sent over to Holland, to a particular port in Holland, and were told to uh, sweep the approaches of this harbour. Um, which apparently upset the Dutch because nobody had told them they were coming and so they started shooting at them for a bit, but nonetheless. And I thought, well, this is rather odd. Why are they doing that? The answer is the day after, or later the same day that they'd done the, the mine sweeping, the Dutch royal family was evacuated to Britain out of that harbour. I found that really interesting. Um, right, let's move on to Southeast Asia now. So this is fighting the Japanese, particularly the Japanese in Burma. And two bomber squadrons, 99 again, which is still flying Wellingtons, has been since 1939, and 215 were sent out to uh, Burma. This is a, it's a nice photograph. It's posed, obviously. It's an official photograph, but it's quite nice. And pretty basic conditions they were operating in. But what about that photograph, then? Paratroops jumping out to Wellingtons? Really? Yes. These are Gurkhas. The only time they ever used the Wellington to drop paratroops in anger was in Burma, once. And again, that nice convenient hole in the bottom of the fuselage where the dustbin turret or the lee light goes was used to, for people to jump out. And that is, a, that's the only practice jump they did. And then they did a, a for real jump into Burma. Talking of odd things that the Wellington did, we've talked about the, the stretching structure. It was also used experimentally as a glider tug. But guess what? They stopped doing it because it was stretching the airframe. The drag of the glider behind it was stretching the airframe, so they had to stop doing it. So, great stuff, geodetics, but not without their issues. Here's a weird one for you, the high-altitude Wimpy. Uh, Pressurised fuselage. The idea here was... A normal Wimpy service ceiling was about 19,000 feet. Lancasters and Halifaxes were about 24,000, something like that. What we need, somebody decided, was a bomber to fly at 40,000 feet. Clear of all defences. Bombing might not be terribly accurate, but nonetheless. So Vickers came up with the pressurised Mark V and Mark VI Wellington. And by the time they got them going, this is a Mark VI, don't know why they put Merlins on it, from what I said before, but nonetheless. Uh, it was realised there was no need for them. Because being up at 40,000 feet wasn't actually going to do them any good anyway, and bombing accuracy wasn't going to be good enough. They built 67 of these things. Uh, only four were ever used by a squadron for training air crews in the use of G, which is a ground mapping radar, and that, that was it. The rest were scrapped. So that was a very brief foray into a high-altitude wimpy. Now, I did say that I would talk about the, the last Wellingtons to drop bombs. This is them. This is 69 Squadron, which was officially a night reconnaissance squadron and which was formed just before D-Day. And the idea was to fly onto the continent at night and look for German troop movements, convoys and so on 
and then call up mosquitoes or typhoons or whatever to come and attack them. And all was going well until, does it even know about Operation Bowdoin Platt? The big German attack on the Allied airfields on the 1st of January 45. By that time, 69 Squadron was at was in Brussels, at Bellsbrook, and of their 24 aircraft, all neatly lined up in a row, when Bodenplatz started, 14 were written off on the spot. Um, it's a bit of an aside, really, because we were obviously capable of replacing lost aircraft much quicker than the Germans could, and pilots and so on. But this is a night reconnaissance squadron, as I said, and after a while, the squadron commander decided, well, this is daft, we're going out and finding these German troops convoys, but we can't attack them because we're not carrying any bombs. Let's start carrying bombs again. So they did. So 69 Squadron is the squadron that kept that Wimpy's claim to fame going right to the end of the war. And in fact, their last bombing operation was on the 7th of May 1945. So, don't anybody tell you the, the Wellington had gone out of bombing service in 1943. A few things about trials and experimental use. Uh, I'm sure you all understand what that is, that's highball, the small version of the dam's weapon that was designed to sink the turpits. Another long story I could bore you with. Anybody been to the swannery at Chesil Beach? Well, when you go to the swannery at Chesil Beach, you'll find that on display in the swannery, which is a, a test highball bomb that was pulled out of the fleet at Chesil Beach a few years ago. It's not that big, it's only about, about that diameter, something like that. Small enough to be carried in a mosquito, that was the idea. What's strange about this Wellington? Well, apart from that, it's a mix of all sorts of marks. It's got a jet engine in the back. Uh, Rolls-Royce and power jets, amongst others, use these to test jet engines. Plenty of room for it, put a kerosene tank down the back, and away you go. And where it says an encounter with the Spitfires, a story told to me by Rolls-Royce, and I, I do hope it's true. I really do. This aircraft had been on a high-altitude trial with the jet, successful, droning their way back towards Hucknall, and down below them they saw, boodling along, nice, quiet and happy, a solo Spitfire on his own. So I thought, we can have a bit of fun here. Going in the same direction. So they restarted the jet, feathered the two Merlins, and whistled past this Spitfire. <laughs> Can you imagine the Spitfire pilot when he got back to his base explaining that in the mess? Would he dare? Lovely. I, I, so I do hope that's true. Who else used Wellingtons? The Fleet Air Arm. Not operationally. They use them for crew training and other odd things like that. I believe that photograph, which came from the Fleet Air Arm Museum, is uh, the Grand Harbour at Valletta. If anybody knows Valletta better than me, I don't know. Perhaps. That's not? Okay. Uh, BOAC, I bet you didn't know they flew Wellingtons. They were given three Wellingtons, cast off from the Air Force, Mark 1Cs, what the Americans would term war-weary aeroplanes, to set up a scheduled operation from Cairo going east and southeast. And you can see they've done a bit of modification, they've taken the tide out, and there's a baggage hold there. And they could carry about ten passengers at a stretch. And they had seconded RAF crew, who probably didn't want to be there at all, and they were an absolute disaster. All sorts of reliability problems, couldn't carry enough. And there's a great quote from one Captain Tricklebank, lovely name, who flew them for BOAC, and he said, one particular pilot had a great difficulty landing this Wellington at a remote airstrip somewhere. And after about ten attempts, he, he tried again and managed to get down. He nicked the, the boundary wall of the airfield as he landed and it was a bit bumpy and all that kind of stuff. But it was okay. And one of the lady passengers actually got out, went up to him and said, thank you, Captain, for a delightful flight. Really? <laughs> okay. But they gave up. They gave them up. They were offered another 12 Wellingtons and decided not to use them. French Air Force, uh, I have to confess, I don't know a lot. Try as I may, 
beyond the fact that 344 Squadron, which was a French squadron, operated Wellingtons in West Africa. And altogether, the French Air Force had about 180 Wellingtons. But if anybody can tell me what they did with them after the war, I'd love to know. I've tried everywhere you can think of in France to... No. They didn't happen for very long after the war, but I don't know what they did with them. I know nothing about this aeroplane, apart from the fact it's got Roman number 14 on it. I don't know. July the 14th? Who knows? So the search goes on for that. But what we do know about is the French Navy. In about 1946, back end of, the French Air Force, a typical, I don't know, whatever, French if you like, sold all their Wellingtons to the French Navy for one franc. Not each, for the lot. And they were a combination of sticklebacks and what have you. And now these went on flying, as you see there, in Morocco and Algeria. Some sources say they were still flying them in 1955. I've never been able to prove that. Occasionally hear this belief that they were still flying them in 1955, which is quite an important year. We'll come back to that. I did get hold from somewhere a photograph of the last French crew after their last trip in the Wellington. They're all standing out by the nose of the aircraft, patting each other on the back and drinking something. Um, but sadly, there's no date on it, so I have no idea when it actually was. Greek Air Force had, again, mostly sticklebacks. Only for about a year, they were trained by the Air Force to do anti-submarine operations, then decided, well, there's no point in doing that, the war's over, we'll use them as transports. And then they decided, well, they're not very good as transports, Dakotas are better, so we'll get rid of them. South Africans had quite a lot, again, primarily maritime and transport, didn't last long after the war. The Luftwaffe. Now, we gifted them quite a few aeroplanes throughout the war, of various sorts, and records vary, about seven, we think, were repaired and test-flown at Recklin, which is their equivalent of Boscombe Down. And I want to put to bed this myth that KG-200 flew Wellingtons. KG-200 was the clandestine unit of the Luftwaffe that dropped agents. And they used all sorts of captured aeroplanes, flying fortresses and liberators and things, but they never used Wellingtons. So somebody tries to tell you otherwise, they didn't. So what else happened to all those Wellingtons that were no longer in uh, first-line use? Crew training. Remember I said 1,000 bomber rays, lots of them were from operational training units. For the rest of the war, in fact throughout the war, Wellingtons were the primary equipment of operational training units where pilots, navigators, bomb aimers, wireless operators, gunners would come together, learn to fly as a crew uh, and then go on to fly in Lancasters or Halifaxes or whatever. And this is typically what they did. A few other things to talk about before we close. Special Operations. 100 Group, which was the sort of secret squirrel group in Bomber Command. They do all sorts of strange, odd things. Um, one of their squadrons is 192 Squadron that flew Wellingtons amongst other types. It says they're locating the beams and listening for radio signals. Two things just to talk about briefly there. It was known quite early on in the war that if the Germans were going to attack a target in the UK 
they would have directional beams with a, a transmitting station up in Denmark somewhere, another one down in the west coast of France, and they would intersect over Coventry, where it happened to be. So the German bombers would then have equipment on board to pick up this, these signals and fly them to the target. Now, we didn't fully understand how that worked. So this squadron, in, the, in order to try and find out how it worked, positioned an aircraft at Manston and waited for information that a German raid was coming in. And as soon as they got that information, off these chaps went, flew around the back of the German formation, tagged on the back to see if they could pick up these signals that the Germans were picking up. It's a bit risky, isn't it? Even more risky, the radio signals one, it was believed that the V2 was controlled by radio. The only way to prove it, have very sensitive listening equipment in a Wellington, fly over to Peenemunda in daylight on your own and fly around there hoping a V2 would be launched and then see if you could pick up a radio signal. Oh, that's extraordinary. And these guys, no, a normal bomber tour was 30 operations. These guys had to do 60 for their tour. And when they asked the question why, the answer was because you're not dropping bombs. Amazing, isn't it? Um, quite a few Wellingtons were converted to transports, not exactly luxurious, as you'll see from that photograph. And this is a, very briefly, a, I wouldn't do that if I were you, sir, story. Peter Fotherby, who was flying that attack on the airfield in Austria, had one of these transport Wellingtons after he finished his tour. And he and his navigator said, well, look, we're only flying quite low. Or something. We don't need all this oxygen stuff. It's too much weight. We don't need the oxygen system. We won't bother the ground crew. Let's just go and take it out ourselves. So in they went, armed with an appropriately sized spanner, which then applied to the top nut on the first bottle, cracked it open to the accompaniment of extremely loud hissing as 3,000 PSIs trying to escape, rapidly followed by them disappearing stage left, leave it to the ground crew. Don't, don't meddle with that, sir. Thank you very much. Um, nothing much to say about that, really, except we did get a bit decorative with our Wellingtons. Now, it did go on in service after the war until 1953, because we had an awful lot of Wellingtons, and we were still training people. And then when the Korean War came along, we suddenly wanted a lot more pilots and navigators. So, particularly for navigator training, we carried on using Wellingtons until 1953 when their descendants of a letter and varsity took over. And there's a pupil navigator beavering away at his table. But, um, fittingly. How many Wellingtons survive today? Not very many. Not very many in one piece. There's a substantial lump of a Mark III in this museum in Norway. This, I think, is quite sad there is most of this very early Wellington in the country. But the wings are at East Kirkby in Lincolnshire. The tail was at the Mosquito Museum. It's now gone to Stratford-on-Avon. Other bits are elsewhere. Why there isn't the wherewithal to bring them all back together and make another Wellington, I really don't know. I think it's a bit of a shame. Not much of a Mark IV, ferreted away in Kenilworth. The well-known, well, one of the two most well-known ones, obviously, the RF Museum one, which is now at Cosford, being refurbished. Now, I put on there, the last flight of this aeroplane was 24th of January 1955, when it was gifted by the Air Force to uh, Vickers and was flown from St. Athen to Wisley. However, if the stories are true, the French still flew some later than that. But as far as we can prove, this was the last ever flight of a Wellington. And the Brooklands one pulled out of Loch Ness some years ago now. Another very early aeroplane. And there it is. Very nicely restored, I have to say, given the state it was in. Almost there. I'm sure there's no sound with this, but I thought you might like to see a moving image of Wellington. So this is 75 Squadron, Jimmy Ward's Squadron, although after he'd been killed.
Now, if any of you, like me, are old enough to remember the Airfix Wellington kit, it's this aeroplane. Be nice to see one flying again, wouldn't it? Wish. Right, some final thoughts to wrap up. 1,727 Wellingtons were lost on operations. That's about 9,000 men, either killed or captured. That's quite sobering, isn't it, if you think about it? 55,573 by command. We all know that figure, don't we, pretty well. Nearly 9,000 of them were Wellington. It's extraordinary. Let's acknowledge the people who made it happen. A nice casual crew photograph. A very posed photograph. This is loading flares in uh, North Africa. This is 99 Squadron in Asia. No, I don't know the name of the bear, I'm afraid. A Coastal Command Squadron in Ali Kelly, Northern Ireland. Ground crew, right. a bit scruffy, aren't they? Get your ear cut lead. And ladies on the production line at Harden, making maritime Mark 14s. There are lots of memorials around the country for those who never came back or just commemorate squadrons. There's dear old Norman Dibwell again. This is at Newmarket, Roly Mile Racecourse, the memorial to 99 Squadron. Um, but they're all over the place. There, there are lots and lots of them, and rightly so. So, finally. Thank you very much. If anybody is interested in a copy of the book, I have a few left. Only £20 tonight, £5 discount. I'd be delighted to uh, hand one over to you. No charge for the signature. But thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. From across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you... Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www aerosociety.com This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.